Thessalonians chapter 3. We're continuing our study in this book. Um, good to have the presentation from Brooke. Those that uh, were present here when we built this building can remember all the great things that God did where we saw God's hand moving, and it'll be exciting uh, to see that again as uh, he leads uh, the body. First Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 to get us started. I'm reading from New American Standard Bible. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Father, we just come into your presence, and we pray that you would teach us through your word. And so these experiences that happened uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, but they have relevance for us today, and so you've kept them in your word so that we can read them and learn. And so we pray that you would open our ears, you'd open our hearts to receive your word, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about concerned for your faith. And that's really going to be the theme of this chapter, as we're going to see. How concerned are you about your faith? How concerned are you about your children's faith? How concerned are you about the faith of the people who attend here. Because faith isn't always the same. It goes up and down. And we're going we're gonna to look at that in this passage. But let's do a quick review. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul is looking back at the shared history he had with the Thessalonians. He reminds them of their past experiences as a foundation for teaching and challenges which will follow, particularly in chapters 4 and 5. So in chapter 1, he thanked God for their salvation and for their joy and enthusiasm in the gospel, which will be a foundation for them to remember and then continue and build on and finish strong. It's a good thing to look at the past and remember the times when you stepped out by faith and you trusted God, but God wants that to be an incentive for you to keep on keeping on. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul specifically reminds them of how the gospel was delivered to them. Several times in the passage, he says, you yourselves know, in verse 1, as you know, verse 5, for you recall, verse 9, you are witnesses, verse 10. He's calling back their memories and saying, you know what I'm telling you is true. And he's highlighting the hard work and sincerity of the ministry that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had done uh, amongst them 
to give the Thessalonian believers both a confidence to trust their ministry, as he writes now to them, and a subtle warning against false teachers um, who seek to please man with flattering speech, with a pretext for greed, and seeking glory from men. He talks about that in, in those verses. Someone's put it this way, the false teachers are looking for fame, glory, they're looking for fame, finances, and the following. And Paul says, that's not how we were. And so there's a subtle warning as false teachers come in. Then in chapter 2, verses 13 to 30, Paul reflects on how the gospel was received by them. He said they welcomed it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And he's laying a foundation for the authority and power of the word of God. So now Paul's going to transition to this time that they've been apart. It's still, we're still looking at history, but this is when Paul wasn't there. And he's going to write them about his concern for their faith. Five times in these 13 verses, Paul will refer to their faith. Um, verse 2, Mark was sent to strengthen and encourage uh, your faith. Does your faith need strengthening and encouraging today? In verse 5, uh, Mark was sent so Paul could find out about your faith. Where is your faith? In verse 6, Mark's return has brought us good news of your faith. A person's faith can actually encourage and affect others positively or negatively. In verse 7, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were comforted about you through your faith. There again is that influence on others. And in verse 10, Paul wanted to come to them that he might complete what is lacking in your faith. There are things that can be lacking in a person's faith. And so we want to look at all these areas where Paul keeps saying, your faith, your faith, your faith, this is what I'm concerned about. And if Paul's concerned about a church's faith, we should be concerned about it too. And so let's uh, plunge on. Um, the faith, why faith? Our faith in God is a sacred trust. In the Old Testament, God brooks no rivals regarding faith. I've been reading through uh, Jeremiah. If you are in the Gideon reading calendar, you're in Jeremiah. And in chapter 5, he says, flee into your fortified cities in which you trust, but I'm going to tear them down because your faith is in the wrong place. In chapter 7, he says, you've trusted in deceptive words. What were those deceptive words? The people had got the idea when Hezekiah, uh, God defended Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah and killed 186,000 of, of Sennacherib's army, that he would never allow Jerusalem to be conquered because it was where his house was. And so when the prophets would come and say, God's going to judge this, they'd say, the temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. God's never going to do that. And God says, I am going to do that. Remember what happened to Shiloh previously. You're believing in deceptive words. There's lots of things out there that want to rival God's faith. And we're going to see how Satan does that uh, 
in this. Faith is a confident trust in the character of God and his ability to fulfill his promises. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and everything he says about himself is true, and that he is able to reward those that diligently seek him, that his promises are, full, are true. He has the ability to keep his promises. The key to the Christian life is faith. In verse 5 that we read, Paul mentioned Satan tempting the Thessalonians, and his concern was that his labor would be in vain. Satan attacks by sowing deception, doubt, discouragement, and despair. He attacks and tries to destroy our confident trust in God's character and his ability to fulfill his promises. He works to get our eyes off of God and on to other things. A number of years ago, I ran across this little lesson that asks, what do you focus on? You'll notice the fourth one. If you look at Christ, you'll be delighted. But if you get your eyes off of Christ, it opens the door for Satan to attack. If you look at circumstances, you'll be discouraged because they're always difficult. They're always overwhelming. If you look at others, you'll be disappointed. In C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, where an older demon's advising a younger demon, the younger demon is advised to attack the young believer by having him concentrate on the negative qualities of other believers. If you look at yourself, the original said you'd be disgusted, and I understand that when you look at your own sin, but I've changed it to despair, a feeling of hopelessness that nothing will or can change. You can really see these attacks in Nehemiah chapter 4. The wall has been built to half its height, and then comes the attack. And verse 10 says, thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. There's disappointment. There is much rubbish. There's discouragement. We ourselves are unable to build the wall. Despair. And the solution, Nehemiah turns their eyes to God. That's the one that's missing in the picture. One last rabbit trail on this subject. In the late 1970s, Richard Burson gave a sermon at a youth conference here, and I suspect most of you, if you were here then, you don't remember it, and a lot of you weren't here back in the 70s. Um, but I thought this was good. He takes it out of John uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, where John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends some disciples to Jesus, and he says, are you really the Messiah? Or do we look to someone else? Because John, the forerunner, he's in prison. And why am I in prison if you're going to bring about this kingdom? And Jesus says, you go back and tell John what you've seen. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the, the gospel's being preached. You tell John that. And then he says, blessed is the one who is not offended in me. This word offended means to be stumbled. To be stumbled so that you become useless, ineffective. And Richard Burson was saying, why do Christians stumble? Because there are things that come into our lives that could stumble us spiritually, become an obstacle to having a confident trust in Christ's character and his ability 
to fulfill his promises. And so Richard Burson listed six things that could cause you to be ripe or susceptible to being offended. The first one is the novelty of belonging to God wears off. He says Christians are no longer ones in whom Christ dwells, but just people and bothersome people at that. You get your eyes on others and you're disappointed. You thought they would live better lives than that. You, you held them to a higher standard and they didn't live up to it. Secondly, Christians become sad. First, because they have false ex expectations of the Christian life. Sometimes you hear it preached, come to Christ and there'll be no more problems. But there's probably more. Or because they discover that life is so daily, so daily. You win a victory over temptation and you go to bed that night and the next morning, not only is he back, but he's brought his three cousins with him. And you say, I just fought this battle. But you've got to fight it again. And the Christian life is very, very daily. And when Christians don't realize that, they become sad and it opens the door to be stumbled. Christian opposition to one's ideas. William Carey was a young pastor in England. God had laid such a burden on his heart for evangelizing the world. And so at the, the Ministerial Association, he said, next year at the Ministerial Association, let's take up the topic of does the, the command in Matthew 28 to evangelize the whole world have a responsibility on us today? And an older pastor said, young man, sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Well, that could have, could have crushed him. But he went to prayer, and the next year he gave a sermon talking about enlarging your tent. And the year after that, he went out to missions as the first mission, uh, missionary of, of that group. But it could have stumbled him. Number four, Christianity demands more self-denial than one first realizes. We were told by Richard Burson, Christianity will cost you your possessions, your money, and even your person. Number five, the thanklessness, thoughtlessness, and gossipiness of God's people. He says, you know, when it comes down to it, the people who will destroy us is us. Again, Satan wants to get your eyes off of Christ. Get your eyes to the circumstances. Get your eyes on other people. And then number six, trials from the Lord. That's what was facing John the Baptist. Satan wants to use these things so you will become offended and made useless for God. And that's the same concern that Paul has here. One last one. Let's do a little history that he's going to talk about in these verses. Paul, on the second missionary journey, had come uh, up through the the churches they had started, the previous missionary journey. He came up to Philippi, worked there, left there, came over to Thessalonica, where they preached, started this little assembly he's writing to. And, and there was such vicious opposition. There was a riot, and uh, Paul had to leave. And he comes over about 50 miles to Berea. And 
they start a little assembly there, but the people in Thessalonica are so rabid against the gospel, they are willing to walk 50 miles to stop Paul from preaching. Now, can you imagine living in that community with the responsibility to carry the gospel to your neighbors? Um, that's what Thessalonica is facing. And so it was decided to have Paul leave and come down to Athens. And in Athens, he sent word back that he would like Silas and Timothy that he had left behind to join him. And so they came down, and we're going to read about it in those first five verses. A decision was made to send Timothy back to Thessalonica and probably Silas back to Berea and Philadelphia. And then while they were gone, Paul moved over to Corinth. And when they rejoined him in Corinth, the report comes back. And Paul is so excited that he writes this letter almost immediately uh, to the, the Christians in Thessalonica to encourage them. So let's take a look at um, these verses. First of all, the plan. Verse 3. Therefore, Paul's looking back. He loves the believers in Thessalonica. He was forced to leave them. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 17... He writes to them, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. So Paul was driven out, he had to leave, and, and it, it caused him a great deal of anguish to leave them. He tried to come back several times, but, but Satan hindered that. And so he's, he's down in Athens, and, and Silas and Timothy arrive, and he says, uh, verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. Paul's there, and Timothy comes down, and, and Silas, and they have word of, of the persecution the Thessalonians are facing. And Paul is just overwhelmed with concern for them. And he knows that, that Satan, maybe even as they tried to go back, having heard this report, Satan hinders him from going back. And so Paul says, we came up with a plan. The plan was for Timothy to go back to Thessalonica and Silas to go back to Philadelphia and, and Berea, but he's writing the Thessalonians. And he says, um, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, this word has th this idea of intenseness about it. He says, verse 2, um, or verse 1, we thought it best to be left behind. That word left behind means to be orphaned, to be bereaved of a loved one. Paul hated to be alone. We often think of Paul, this, this great man who, who could stand, but Paul really was a team worker. He had he brought team members together. And, and the thought of being left in Athens, and if you know what happened in Athens, there wasn't a very good response to the gospel there. But the thought of being left alone uh, really was, was a hard thought for Paul. But Paul said, as I'm thinking about your need, I thought it was better that I be bereaved of Silas and Timothy and be left alone in Athens. Verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. He says, so the plan was, send Timothy. 
And Timothy's a good man. He's a brother. He's, he's proven himself to be a, a brother in the faith, a believer in Jesus Christ. And more than that, he's proved himself to be one of those who doesn't try to please men. He pleases God. He's a, a servant. He's a hard worker. It's a, it's a word that implies being a very hard worker. And he's, he's a team worker. He's God's fellow worker in the gospel. And so he says, he's a good man for me to send to you, and I'm sending him to encourage and strengthen your faith. Paul's concerned that they're going to get stumbled. Paul's concerned that they're, they're going to be hindered in their Christian life. And so he says, I'm sending Timothy to strengthen and encourage your faith. How do you strengthen and encourage someone's faith? Well, back in Nehemiah, when, when people were in despair and, and disappointed and frustrated, uh, first thing Nehemiah said was, remember the great and awesome God. Our God can handle this. And then a couple of verses later, it says, when when." the fact that the enemy's plan had become known and God had frustrated their plan. He immediately pointed out evidence where God was working on their behalf. And later he, he takes one of the promises of God and he says, God will fight for us. So stand firm. And, and strengthening someone in their faith is getting their eyes focused on the character and the promises of God. And as we go through this building project, you know what? There will be setbacks. There will be things that we didn't see. And at that point, we need to encourage one another. We need to focus on God. And then we need to look for God's hand. I could tell you 20 different ways that God worked in the building of this building. I mean, you know how much that big sign on the wall of, of the building of the chapel cost us? I think it was about $230 because we had a man who could cut the letters and so they charged him for the metal. We had another man who worked in a body shop and his boss said, I'll even give you the paint and allowed them to paint it. And we had a woman who worked for a, a rental place and they said, hey, you can have the lift for free. So we had to buy the metal and the glue. That was it. And dozens and dozens of ways we look back and we say, look what God and there's an opportunity, and we're going to have to take that responsibility of looking around, not looking at the circumstances, but looking at the hand of God in the circumstances. That's what God wants us to do. And we're going to have to fortify each other with the promises of God. Well, what about this? Are God's bigger than this? And that's exactly what Nehemiah did, and that's exactly what Timothy's going to do. He's going to strengthen their faith, and encourage them. Come alongside, both by his life, his testimony, experiences he's had, and his knowledge of, of God and his promises. He's going to come along, and he's going to encourage their faith. He has to help them understand that their dependence upon God is their only real recourse. And they can only remain faithful as they let God supply the inner strength. We can't do it. God can. And he can give us the patience, the strength, the wisdom to do it. And we have to encourage one another. 
you can almost hear Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, remind them of what we taught them before we left. Why? He says, verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourself know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. He said, they shouldn't have the, any false expectations. There will be problems. There will be hurdles to overcome. We told them that. Timothy, remind them. We told them that. And it's come to pass. This is not a shock or a surprise. There are problems in the Christian life. The Lord Jesus told his disciples, they hated me, they'll hate you. He told his disciples of problems coming. Paul taught it in his letters. Peter taught it in his letters. It is clear in the New Testament. But he wants our confidence to be in God. And he knew the Thessalonian believers were under attack. He had seen the hostility and violence of those opposed to the gospel. And he didn't want these attacks to become a stumbling block for their zeal for living for Christ and sharing the gospel. I've seen that happen. I can give you examples. I think of a, of a spiritual leader who went on a mission trip and seeing the poverty of the land, it, it bothered him. And he came back and he began to focus a little more on, on money and providing for himself. And love of money because it's the root of all evil and people who follow it are pierced through with many problems. And it showed up in his life. So much so that people began to say, was he really a believer? It happens. And Paul says, what's the root cause? Well, look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He says, I was so concerned about you that, that Satan's going to use this opportunity to stumble you. I had to know, is their faith healthy? Is their faith growing? Is their faith solid? Because Satan wants to undermine their faith. And then he got Timothy's report. But now that Timothy's come to us from you and has brought good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. He says, Timothy came. And when he came back, he, he told me, Things were going well. You were standing strong for Jesus Christ. And, and he says there in, in verse 6, now Timothy's come to us, has brought us good news of your faith and love. That word good news, only twice in the Bible is it not used of preaching the gospel. The gospel means good news. Paul says the good news of your faith was good news like to the degree of the news of salvation that you were standing strong, that you were solid in faith. It was just overwhelming good news. And, and he says, your faith and love, because love displays the reality of your faith. And he says, I was concerned too that 
Paul, Timothy and, and Silas came back, and you're saying, where's Paul? Where's Paul? Was Paul just here? Was he just looking for scalps? So Paul's really not interested in us. He's just interested in the number of people that, that he can say. And, and he said that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. He said he also brought news back that you don't think that way about me. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Your faith was a, a comfort and an encouragement to me. Why? Well, because he was concerned that their faith would be in vain, that the work would be worthless. Well, just quit. Have you ever been on the doors, knocking on doors, sharing the gospel, and you keep running into difficulty, 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 and you look at the other person and you say, well, you know, it's 45 minutes before we're supposed to quit. Let's, let's quit. And then the next door, you lead someone to Christ. And you turn to the person next to you and say, I know we only got five minutes left, but let's hit a couple more doors. Why? Because it encourages you. When you see the fruit of faith, it encourages you. And Paul says, Satan attacks. Paul will say later as he's facing death, um, but I am I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. What he committed to Jesus Christ against that day was his work. He's now in prison and all these reports are coming. Oh, these, these assemblies have been swept away in false teaching. These assemblies are under terrible persecution. There are people who, who are preaching out of selfish ambition and strife and trying to take leadership positions for pride's sake. And, and, you know, Satan's right there saying it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the times you were scourged. It wasn't worth the times you were beating. It wasn't worth it. He says, no, I know enough of Jesus Christ that I'm persuaded that his work will stand. And, and Paul says, it's this kind of thing that encourages my heart. In fact, verse 8 for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Man, I'm so excited. We're going to go to work here in Corinth. Why? Because look what happened in Thessalonica. Look how lives were changed. Look how people came to faith. Look how people are living for Christ. We're going to plunge into the work with new enthusiasm, new excitement here in, in Corinth. Verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account? He says, it just thrills my heart because I know God did this. You have things in your life that you know God did. It wasn't you, it was God. And he says, I'm just thrilled. I'm so thankful to God. For the work, he allowed me to just be there to see what he was doing. And then he goes on, night and day, we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your faith and may complete what's lacking in your faith. He says, I keep praying night and day. I want to get up there. I want to see you. I want you to know how eagerly I want to see you. 
and I want to be there because there are things lacking in your faith. Do you have things lacking in your faith? Paul says, you're not complete. See, I was driven off. There were truths in the word of God that I didn't have an opportunity to teach you. There were things that, some insights into the character of God and into the truth of God that you, you haven't picked up yet. And I want to be there to complete that, to, to take you to maturity. Are you in the word? When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were not complete in faith. You come to faith through the word of God. God adds to your knowledge. All of it, I remember hearing a preacher say, there's one thing I can say with absolute certainty. God's bigger than how everybody in this room thinks he is. And God wants to teach you how big he is. God wants to teach you how firm his promises are. God wants you to grow in your faith. And Paul says, we didn't have the opportunity to do that. And I want to get back and provide that which is lacking in your faith. Christians reach a place and they say, well, now I can just relax. No, no. You have to keep growing. You have to keep understanding who God is. There's a word that's used in this passage where he says, um, let's see if I can find it here, where they, um, up in, in verse five, I can dirt no longer send, find out about your faith, fear the temper might have tempted you. Um, he talks about them being uh, disturbed, oh, up in verse 3, so that no one would disturb you by these afflictions. That word disturbed is a very interesting word. It comes from a dog wagging his tail. And so it went two directions. One was uh, instability, back and forthness, to be disturbed, to be unsettled. The other one was to be alert. I, don't, I have a little dog. And he, when it's time to eat, he comes to me and he starts wagging his tail. He's trying to allure me. Usually he's about a half hour early. He's trying to allure me to feed him a half hour early. That's how Satan works. See, he wants to unsettle your faith. Here comes something. And I get my eyes off of God. And, and it unsettles me. And then he follows up with something to allure to put your faith in instead of God. That's exactly how he works. And Paul says, I'm so afraid that Satan is going to unsettle you through your afflictions. And then he's going to say, well, you know, if you just don't be so out with your faith, if you just kind of go with the flow, you'll be all right. No. Paul says, I want you to grow. And so he ends, oh my, with prayer. <laughs> Paul's prayer, verse 10. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. He says, listen, God is your father. He's on your side. And he himself will help you. And the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting. That word direct our way to you has a single. It's a verb with a single uh, uh, noun attached to it. He will direct you. 
It shows the unity of Jesus Christ and God the Father as the Godhead acting in our lives. He says, my first prayer is God would take away the hindrances and allow us, and particularly me, to come up and be with you. And then his next prayer request, um, verse, 11, uh, verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. He says, I want God to grow your love. It has the idea of increase to overflowing. So it just overflows out of your life. And not just for the believers, you need to love one another, but I want you to, to love everybody up there, even those that persecute you. That your testimony, the love that you, you show, shows that you've been changed. Have the same love for those who are persecuting you that we had for you when we came. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before him. He says, listen, I want God to strengthen you in your inner man. I want God to work in your, in your heart so that you would live holy lives without blame. This idea of blame means uh, so you don't have anybody who can um, uh, bring a reasonable charge against you. I want God to work in your life so you live a holy life and nobody can say, oh, yeah, but you remember when he did da-da-da-da? And how do you live that way? Well, you live that way by living a separated life to God in your heart and in your habits. And when you sin, you deal with it as God requires. And then you're free from any reasonable charge by others. And then he says, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints... Now the question is, is this the rapture or the revelation? His coming for the saints to take him off the earth where the Lord comes in the air? Or is this his coming in revelation where he comes to, to reign as, as king and, and judge the earth that we'll see in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians? The commentators are split on this. And it's because of that talk about um, before our God and Father at his coming, he talks about uh, the idea of of being blameless in holiness before him, which is really kind of a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Um, I, and so they argue about it. What I'm going to tell you is, I, I think the best view is that um, in view is the whole coming of Christ. He's going to come for his church. His church is going to go through the judgment seat of Christ where all the services been done for Christ will, will be recognized and rewarded and there will be glory for that and then he's going to come with his saints to this planet. And I think in this particular passage he has the view of the entire thing. Well, very, very quickly, lessons that we should have from this. Uh, the importance of your faith. It's the real target that Satan aims at when he attacks you. Your confident trust in God. Because that's the foundation of everything. You may think he's, he's attacking something else, but he's really attacking your faith. He wants to disturb you, and then he wants to bring something along to allure you away. And it's a sacred trust, our faith, that we have with God. Secondly, be aware of Satan's strategy, 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that no advantage could be taken from us because we are not ignorant of his schemes. Be aware of how he works. 
And then lastly, have someone who can encourage and strengthen your faith. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. Do you have somebody in your life who, who challenges you, who encourages you, who, who motivates you in your faith? Are you that kind of person for someone else? Paul says, I was so concerned that not that they would lose, the, not that they would lose their salvation, but that we would have a whole group of Christians up there in Thessalonica who are mainly intent on just keeping their heads down, not causing any waves, and just content to live like the world. And that's not what God wants. Be concerned about your faith. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for who you are. And we are so thankful that you keep your promises. And someday we will see the face of the Lord Jesus. Someday we will be in heaven if we've put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. Help us as we walk the road of life to keep our focus on you, on the Lord Jesus, on your word, on your character. Help us not to be distracted by circumstances, by the, the failures of others, um, by even our own uh, powerlessness. Let us not fall into discouragement or disappointment or, or despair. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.